This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to episode two of John Richardson and the Future Noughts, How to Survive the Apocalypse. I am John Richardson and I am joined as ever by the Future Noughts, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. We are a further week into lockdown, it has to be said. It's hard to talk about anything else. So when I say, how are you? I basically mean, how are your relationships with your loved ones? Uh, Last week, Ed, your girlfriend had taught you how to say, go F yourself in the A. What's this week's Italian lesson? Well, this week I've learned how to describe Sarah's slug circus, which is Gioque e delle Lumachi, which is basically slug circus in Italian. Oh, it sounds a lot grander, though. I'd go and see that. <laughs> Everything does sound a lot grander in Italian. It's, you know, it is this fantastically colourful and dramatic language. As we'll be discussing food, I, I learned an Italian uh, phrase for you that I thought Sarah might have taught you. Do you know what it means if I say, mangia merda? Mangia merda? No, it's some, eating something. Eat, eat shit. Eat shit. <laughs> I thought you might want that. Oh, it's charming. <laughs> it's a good response to vaffanculo, I think. Mangia yeah. merda. Oh yeah, because the other one, the other thing is like most Italian swearing is entirely testicle or penis related. I was in a taxi in Milan once, and the driver was doing a classic impression of of someone from the Italian job and hooning round a roundabout with one arm hanging out the window, shouting "Corleone" uh, at other drivers. And I said to Sarah afterwards, "So what does that mean?" She goes, "Well, it basically means bollock." <laughs> so Don Corleone is Don is- Bollock. Big bollock. The big bollock. <laughs> well, I never knew that. There we go. I've learned something already. This is why I get you guys here. Uh, Mark, your lockdown is with a partner and two children. Yes. How's that going? Well, the two children are still alive, which I think is a miracle. <laughs> well done. It's fine. I think. Um, it's just, oh, it's no time. No time to do anything. It's like extreme sports parenting is how I'm feeling. Yes. How are you dealing with uh, judging the other parent? Because... Uh... <laughs> I'm not good at that. Well, it's very clear that Caroline is a much better parent than me. Ah, that must be tricky because I'm the good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a little test to find out if my wife is listening to my yeah. newest project. Um, so if I'm currently getting kicked in the balls, then I know she's listening. If I sort of spend a morning desperately trying to think up some activity like making jigsaws, you know, from scratch because we've run out of the ones that she's done a hundred times. And then I say, right, I need to go and do some work. And within 10 minutes, I hear the telly on. I have to come downstairs to audibly tot through the crack in the door. I'm a real piece of shit. I did, a, I think, a parenting stroke of genius of the day, which is I taught my four-year-old to hoover, which he thought was (laughs) fantastic (laughs) and did for about an hour. That is how you end up with a child at the John Richardson end of the spectrum, just so you know that. So that comes back to bite you on the ass when your child (laughs) is grown up and has his own place and you come round and put a cup down and he says, not there, daddy. (laughs) You started that. (laughs) So we've had... uh, We've had an email, this is very exciting, gentlemen, um, from New Zealand. And I know that emails, by definition, can come from anywhere at the speed of light. But it still excites me that it's from New Zealand. Did it say which part of New Zealand? Oh, it does, yes, but I don't know if I can say it. I can do a sort of vaguely um, Flight of the Concordsy New Zealand accent, but I can't <laughs> pronounce New Zealandy words. But it says, uh, greetings from... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It's it's Chris here, guys. Uh, Hey there, it's Chris. Um, C-H-R-S. Chris, 
Um, <laughs> greetings from Aotearoa. Is that it from New That's Zealand? Aotearoa? A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. It's very good. The land of the long white cloud. Didn't get offered a role in the series, but I'm fine with it. Anyway, so he says, greetings from New Zealand, uh, 90 minutes north of Wellington. Thank you for your podcast, which made... And, in, and then Chris says, us. So he's either talking about his family with whom he listened, or he surveyed all of the people of New Zealand. And he said, great podcast. It made us laugh, think, reflect, and even act. Um, so we've potentially either changed a country or a man. But um, either way, you've got to start somewhere, right? And he then goes on to say that he hopes that we will help him navigate his way through all of this. And that, that's a pressure I don't think we can take on board at the moment. I think after your New Zealand accent, we probably won't have any more listeners from New Zealand now. So we no. should be fine. Well, to those, I say a big Surrey. Um, so that's nice, isn't it? And we've also had a tweet. Uh, we've had more than one tweet, but we've had one which I thought I'd read you because if anything, it illustrates why I ask the questions and you answer them because I don't know what it means. But it's from uh, Tommy, who is an ex-coder. Uh, that's according to his bio. Ex-coder, husband, Xbox enthusiast. He's hoping his partner doesn't read them in that order because... I think they would probably be hoping it was a husband more than an ex-coder. I think ex-anything is a bad way to start a hierarchy of your life. <laughs> um, uh, I used to play Five Aside. I have three children. Oh, <laughs> do the kids first. Anyway, um, he says, what's your favorite logical fallacy? Oh, And I don't know what that is. So I don't really have a favorite until one of you tells me what a logical fallacy is. A logical fallacy is where you build an argument on false grounds. So, oh, for... I do that all the time. My whole marriage <laughs> then is my favourite logical fallacy. <laughs> uh, so, for instance, you might have uh, like the straw man argument, where you say, "Oh, what you're saying is this," and then knock that down. And actually, you never said that in the first place. Or the fallacy of um, you know it has to be one thing or the other. You know, when people say, "Well, if it's going to be that, then it can't be this," and actually, there's three or four choices so that is actually my favorite logical fallacy because the yeah. work we do for instance about oh we can't have prosperity without fossil fuels we often get that kind of argument it's like well no that's, that's not true that's not the only choice on the table so it's that, that's my favorite logical fallacy what about you ed i'll make it easy for you john it's basically anything and everything that donald trump ever says <laughs> okay it's a logical fallacy difficult to have a favorite really yes <laughs> You hear it from Trump all the time, you know, whether it's like the appeal to his authority, you know, that obviously his authority and decisions could be unquestioned, to the appeals to ignorance, uh, you know, the setting up of false dilemmas. I mean, literally everything that comes out of Trump's mouth yeah. is a logical And particularly um, the ad hominem attacks, which yes. he actually, you know, does all the time, which is just attacking the person rather than attacking their argument. Well, thank you for all your uh, tweets and emails. Um, it's obviously a new project, so it's good to know that you are listening and uh, you can get in touch. And if you would like to, here's how. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Um, so last week we discussed in depth uh, on our first episode the lockdown and the virus and the societal factors therein. Now this week we are discussing food, which certainly has become more of a factor in uh, my life. I like to wake up and know exactly what we're having for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I'm actually eating quite well. I don't know if that's because I'm thinking about it more. When I first started playing darts, I said to someone, I'm much better on doubles than I am at scoring. And they said to me, well, that's just because you think about it a lot more and you don't realise you're doing it, but you're trying harder. And maybe that's the thing now about lockdown. It's a good time to talk about food because the scarcity of getting hold of things is making, I think, everybody think a lot more about what they eat and where it comes from. Would you agree? I think that's exactly right. I think buying food becomes a bit more of an adventure. Uh, you know, I actually, weirdly, I live above a, a Sainsbury's local. So... Uh, Jackpot. 
it's become like a nightclub you know it's a sort of one in one out policy because of the physical distancing stuff whereas of course you can just lift a few floorboards yeah, exactly <laughs> middle of the night crank up a few floorboards downstairs get what you need no one even well, knows you've been there I have a fairly tense relationship with the Sainsbury's as well because out the back of the block, uh, I had a barbecue a couple of years ago. I didn't realise that the Sainsbury's ventilation vents were right next to where I was having the barbecue. I had to go down and get another ingredient and I walked out the front door of the flat and went, oh, Sainsbury's is closed. That's a bit inconvenient. So I went up, <laughs> went up the road to go and get butter from the corner shop and I, I came back uh, to see sort of firemen entering Sainsbury's and I was like oh that might be something to do with me um, <laughs> and uh anyway so i said uh is this to do with smoke and he went yeah 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 there's apparently smoke coming in the back room their fire alarm's gone off i said i think that's me having a barbecue anyway i moved to barbecue and then about two weeks later same summer i had another barbecue and i'd moved it and i wasn't anywhere near the vent and the same fireman basically appeared on my fence and just looked over the back and he went guess what <laughs> <laughs> um so you're all right. Uh, Mark, are you, are you getting food in at the moment? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've realised is just how much money we used to spend out at, you mm. know, at restaurants and, and getting breakfast and grabbing a coffee here. And the household bill has plummeted and we're eating loads better, actually. The tyranny is suddenly making, for particularly two kids, three meals every day, every single day. And trying yes. to keep healthy. This is one of the things about you know eating out that you don't realise. If you know if you've ever worked in a restaurant, one of the reasons that things always taste fantastic when you eat out is because of the amount of butter they put in a dish that you would never <laughs> comprehend putting in at home. And, you know the yeah. secret is is like basically a third of a packet of butter in a risotto, which means like, oh my god, it's so silky. Uh, and obviously you don't do that when you're at home. So uh, we obviously do eat healthier. Usually we eat about a third of our calories outside of the home, and now we're cooking for ourselves. We are probably cooking in a more healthy way and also you know you, you become a lot more conscious about food waste uh when you're cooking everything at home because you realize you don't know where the next calorie might be coming from so you become a little bit more conservative yes. about what's going in the compost bin well i suspect we'll get on in more detail to food waste um the reason i think it's an interesting time to talk about pre-lockdown and the virus i would say i was a fairly ethical shopper the big food issues of our time as far as i'm told are air miles and plastic wrapped things and things that aren't seasonal and i was getting to a point where i was being fairly conscientious of those things the lockdown has been a sort of excuse i, I can only speak for myself to sort of think well who knows if i'll ever get a blueberry again so the blueberries have been <laughs> back on the menu which probably makes me an asshole. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a linear relationship between blueberries and being an arsehole. Yeah, I mean, I think, John, there's, a, there's lots of other reasons that we could consider you to be an arsehole. Episode three, something to look forward to there. <laughs> now, the basic structure we use on this show is how fucked are we, why are we fucked, and how do we unfuck ourselves? So before we get too much into what the problems are, I've sort of mentioned their plastic and air miles. I'm sure you'll tell me that they're actually far more important and pertinent issues than that. How fucked are we in terms of our current way of growing and eating food? Is the situation sustainable indefinitely as we have it? Could it be improved on, or is it an absolute catastrophe waiting to happen? It is an absolute catastrophe that has, to a large extent, already happened. Oh, should we cancel this then? I mean, it's solvable, and there are some right. some great things going on to, to solve it. But headlines are 50% of the world's population live under water stress because the agricultural systems we use are too thirsty. We've got an agricultural system that's very industrialized. So you've got lots of monocrops, which leads to this pesticide treadmill where all the pests head to one crop and then they eat it. So you have to improve your pesticides and then the pests evolve around that. And they, you know, So you get this kind of war game going on. You've got soil erosion that uh, by some estimates is 17 tonnes per hectare per year which means, according to some soil scientists, we've got less than 60 harvests left on the planet. That's just, a, that's just a top line. Ed, would you like to come on with the role of Armageddon? I thought I was the one who didn't get invited to parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think just, I mean, just to add to the, the kind of the tales of whale, I mean, I think, but yeah, certainly from a UK perspective, you know, we're less than 50% food self-sufficient. We're also quite an overweight nation. So we're eating, we're growing and eating the wrong stuff and we're not actually growing enough of it here. And also we waste somewhere between uh, a third and a half of the food we do produce. So, you know, in addition to the things Mark was talking about, we're obviously we're growing the wrong stuff. We're eating too much of the wrong things and, and we're throwing too much of the right stuff away i mean if you looked at if you're an alien looking at our food system from out 
side of the planet, you'd have to conclude that we were completely bonkers. There's a great <laughs> quote from William Burroughs who said, after one look at this planet, any visitor from outer space would say, I want to see the manager. You know, so if you were looking at planet Earth as a restaurant, you'd be going, this is the most inefficient, badly run restaurant I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and food should be such a glorious thing as well. You know, it's like the most sensuous thing you can do with your clothes on. Well, there speaks a man who's never wiped his skirting boards with an antibacterial wipe. <laughs> Um, you know, it should be about an Epicurean path to pleasure. Our closest relatives, the bonobo chimpanzees, actually actively use food to broker friendships between each other and then do all sorts of other things to each other. But, you know, food should be the glorious heart of our relationship with each other and the rest of the world and, and indeed with ourselves. And it's totally not, actually. It's a kind of catalogue of hidden horrors right now. So where do you think we should start then? I, as a sort of consumer, I'm not probably aware of where the big problems are then when you talk about pesticides and the water table and things like that i mean i i guess a sort of opening caveat would be we in the west are probably the most at fault in terms of where the problems with our purchases lie and also have the least to complain about in terms of actually We've got loads of food, and as you say, we waste most of it. And that's a key thing, actually. I mean, I was at an event last year with the Brazilian chef, Alex Atala, who said something brilliant. He said, if we're not hungry, we don't value food. So we take a lot of this stuff for granted, and we don't ask the questions. But the fact is, we take that for granted because food is still relatively cheap. The proportion of our income that we spend on food is quite low, although obviously in lockdown and in this crisis, the percentage of our income being spent on food has gone right up. But you know, the reality is cheap food doesn't exist. What is happening is we're basically pushing all of the external costs back out into the environment and, and further down the track. And so this is why we have this vulnerability and fragility. But I mean, at the very basic level, as Mark sort of alluded to, it is the, it's the big monocrops. And again, in the UK, what we're doing is we're growing a lot of stuff to feed to animals, which is an incredibly inefficient way of rearing animals, apart from anything else. Grass-fed sheep and cattle are one thing, uh, but when you're growing grain to feed to cattle, it's a sort of protein conversion disaster. Uh, yeah, so if you look at, for instance, the efficiency of the production of beef, for instance, if you take you know, the amount of energy from the sunlight that went into the uh, the food that was fed to the cattle and eventually ends up in your stomach, in terms of conversion from sunlight to calories, it's about 3% efficient, which is insanely ridiculous. You know, When you think about that, if you ran your business along those lines and you said, oh, well, yeah, how efficient are you as a business? Oh, about 3%. You obviously shit at it then, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, the system itself works as if the world is completely abundant and we'll just keep on giving us stuff. And that's all running down now because we've got soil erosion. And what do we do when we get soil erosion? Well, we pump more fertilizer into the soil. And what does that do? It increases soil erosion. So, you know, we're heading towards this cliff edge with the way we produce food at the moment. But there are there are ways out of it, which we will come on to in the section, yeah. uh, how do we unfuck ourselves? So we're talking already about meat is a big one. And, you know, the running gag of this podcast already has been how not to get yourself invited to a dinner party. And I'll tell you <laughs> the best way beyond your personality is to tell someone that you don't eat meat and certainly to tell someone that you're a vegan because that really upsets people. You're famously vegan, aren't you? I'm famously doing my best. I'm as vegan as I can be um, in a difficult world, is what I would say. I'm just aware if I describe myself as militantly vegan, A, people don't really like that, and B, someone will see me at some point having a breakdown in two years crying in a McDonald's, and they'll take a picture of me and come over and tell me at a point when I already know that I've made bad choices. I don't buy meat and dairy. I do, however, have a three-year-old who is not as militant about food waste as I am. So um, if we're out and she gets a cheese sandwich and she doesn't eat it, I'm faced with buying my own lunch and putting that cheese sandwich in the bin or just eating it. And I'm not going to lie, I tend to eat it. And is that why you keep taking Elsie to steak restaurants? Yeah, very much so, yeah. I say she loves Nando's, absolutely loves Nando's, and she orders it with the extra hot sauce, and I tell her every time, you're not going to like that. <laughs> and you certainly won't want that beer. No, that's what my, my mate in Bristol calls flexitarianism. You know, it's like, well, you do the right thing nearly all the time, but you don't feel guilty about it when you don't. Well, there is a massive, and, and uh, the reason I flag this up is I don't want this to be a turnoff point for anyone mm. listening who currently eats meat. The narrative of these debates is meat is the most toxic industry on the planet. I've made my choice and I came to it hard. You know, I had a friend who had gone vegan and said, well, I did it because I read this book, told me the title of the book, the author, it was Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Four. I went home, I bought the book immediately and I didn't read it for two years because I thought, 
if I read that book, I'll stop eating meat. And I really like eating meat, so I just won't read it. But I've bought it, and that makes me a good person. <laughs> um, so I get the sort of kickback against it, but you two both eat meat, right? Yeah, and I think the big, the big distinction for me, I mean, I don't eat very much, but um, the big distinction is this industrialization of agriculture and livestock agriculture in particular, which has gone on, which is the stuff which is, you know, pretty abhorrent. We have this notion of farmers. You know, even the language and the words conjure up an image of a sort of yeoman gentleman in tweed and wellies, you know, with his arm around a cow in a field. Uh, and you like to think it's that stewardship and relationship of the land. But actually, a lot of intensive livestock agriculture or it's essentially facilities, you know, these big sort of industrial units where the animals barely see the light of day and are kept in pretty, pretty grim conditions and have pretty grim lives. You know, I think you see this facilities approach in livestock and then you also have what is essentially a war being fought against soil in, in agrarian agriculture where in, when we're growing our crops it's not seen as a sort of partnership relationship with the soil the soil is like a, a growth medium so instead of looking at the, the soil bacteria and fungi and microbes which actually give it all its fertility and richness uh, we rinse the, the productivity out of the soil uh, and we don't work in alignment with it and in the same way that we're not working in alignment with the animals so for me there's a, it's a big industrialization question yeah absolutely there's a great Chinese proverb which is man dis- Despite his artistic pretensions and many accomplishments, owes his existence to a six-inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Mm. And is that a Chinese proverb? No, it's not. <laughs> no. I didn't think there were many Chinese proverbs that have the word topsoil in. They're mostly about hiding your intentions to make war, aren't they, or something? Actually, this was said by Paul Harvey, who was a, actually a conservative radio host in America for ABC. Why do you only get ancient Chinese proverbs? Where were all the other people when the proverbs were getting written? <laughs> well, no, the thing is China's had 5,000 years of continuous civilization, whereas, you know, when they were doing gunpowder and writing, uh, we were still poking each other with sharp sticks. You could have a proverb about poking someone with a sharp stick. Well, there is. Yeah, sticks and stones may break my bones, but right-wing US commentators masquerading as Chinese proverbs will never happen. <laughs> what we've done is we've, with our farmers, we've taken the nature out of nature. So, for instance, a lot of people might say uh, I'm vegan or vegetarian because I believe that you've got to get rid of the animals you know basically out of farming and the problem is if you do that you know, you're getting rid of a very vital part of the ecosystem so I have a lot of admiration for people who choose to be vegan on ethical and health grounds thanks but if you said um, and we need to get rid of all the animals from the land then actually you'd, you'd be creating another kind of agrarian possible monoculture which is equally as bad so so in my first book and indeed my second book we wrote about how you have functioning ecosystems are very productive and you work with nature because i don't know if you've noticed but nature is very good at growing shit it's like brilliant Mm. at it you know it's fantastic and what we've done is we think oh no we know better which is ridiculous so there are ways for instance of doing sustainable cattle farming that uh, actually increases soil fertility, brings carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil is, you know, um, you know and uh, my friend Tony Lovell, for instance, is using this technique to re-green large parts of the Australian outback at the moment. And that's that kind of grass-fed, sustainable, carbon-positive beef. And there are ways of doing it. And he's, you know, he's, he's doing very well at it, you know, so there are ways to do meat production that's profitable and good for the planet and doesn't involve huge amounts of water. Now, if you then decide to be vegetarian or vegan on moral or health grounds, that's a different thing. But what you don't want to do is have this very binary argument where you say, well, if we go in that direction only and get rid of all the animals, you're in trouble. I mean, what do you want to do? Take away all the, the wildebeest on the Serengeti? They can be there. I just wouldn't eat them. Yeah, indeed. But I suppose the point I'm making about Serengeti is if you look at that, that's a functioning ecosystem of animals and grass and whatever working together. And it's this constantly replenishing uh, thing that works for the planet, for the soils, for the animals themselves. And actually, the, the farms that my friend Tony is running basically mimic what happens on the Serengeti. How has this been allowed to happen then? If, you, if you're talking about the, the fact that there is, you know, in your view, clearly a sustainable and environmentally beneficial way of doing it. Correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seems like it, it could either be the fault of greedy industries and farmers you know, making as much profit as they can. Is it not driven by a desire to create enough food to feed a growing population or was it a sort of nefarious from the start? Ah, well, now we come to Norman Borlaug. Oh, Borlaug. Perhaps the most controversial character in agriculture in a way that he he is the only one of only six people in the world to have won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Gold Medal and the US Presidential Medal for Freedom. Oh, well, he's never won a loaded laughter award, though, has he? <laughs> <laughs> so Norman Borlaug, so there was a huge famine in the 60s, which millions of Chinese died. 
And there was this idea that we had to increase the productivity of the land. So what Norman did, he's, he's the person who's credited as perhaps the only human being to have saved a billion lives. And what he did was he, he pioneered these ways of growing these global security crops with much higher yields. Um, and they're called global security crops, uh, maize, wheat, and rice, because they provide roughly half the world's plant-derived food energy. But he created these strains of these um, crops that gave much higher yields than the traditional strains we've been using. So they, they, they would give you two, three, four times the amount of, on the harvest, which was great. But the kicker was they would only do that if they had extra inputs of things like fertilizer and water. So what happened was he was doing this really good thing, but he's saying in order for this to work, you need to have all these inputs of you know fertilizers, pesticides, whatever, and that's how you get the yield. And so what came out of that was this massive sort of industrialized mindset. Okay, the only way to do it is bring in the big guns of you know loads of irrigation, whatever, loads of fertilizer, pesticides, whatever, and we'll do it that way because we need to we need to feed people. So it was all based on I think a very humanitarian way of thinking, but it came with this massive sustainability headache out the back end. To the extent mm. that, for instance, in the Punjab right now, which is you know, was one of the first areas to really embrace Borlaug's ideas. And it was called the breadbasket of India as a result because productivity went through the ceiling. Right now in the Punjab, the water table is now 300 metres underneath the surface and they're converting old oil wells into water wells to try and get at the water because the systems we're using are long-term unsustainable. And that, that I think, is where the problem has come from is that it started off like we've got to save people's lives and here's a way of doing it. But as we've we've kind of gone, oh, that's the way to do it and have forgotten a lot of other ways of doing it, uh, which are actually allowing to have pretty much the same yields without the massive cost and the ecological headache that comes with it. Do we need those yields then? Are those yields essential? You know, before Norman Borlaug, was there not enough food to feed everyone and now there is? Well, this is a mute point because of the amount of food that we waste. So, for instance, you know, as Ed said, we waste, you know, between 30 and 50% of the food that we produce. And that most of that actually is waste between the farm and the shop. It's not me throwing away some mouldy broccoli. The food is wasted and gets spoiled between it being harvested and between it being sold. And one of the reasons for that is because we don't have enough refrigeration around the world. So, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, 96% of the food that's lost is lost before it reaches a human to even eat which is horrific. Mm. And so that leads on to the other thing, which is sustainable refrigeration. So the world spends about $100 billion a year on this artificial cryosphere to try and keep stuff refrigerated. It's one of the pillars of society we never talk about. 16% of the electricity in the UK goes on cooling stuff because it is absolutely essential to have an efficient cooling system. So we don't have sustainable refrigeration, which is one of the reasons we waste a lot of food. And we have a system that is industrial in its mindset that doesn't really understand the other ways of doing things. And I think the other thing about to notice about the waste thing as well is, is actually once you start to make visible in your own mind the embodied resources behind the stuff that you're shoveling into the bin or the compost bin, you know, when you start to think about the, the carbon and energy and the fuel, you know, the human blood, sweat and tears and toil yeah. that's gone into that, it's very hard to unsee, actually. You, you know, you start to realise the effort that's gone into producing stuff that you're just blithely flipping into the compost. And I think that that consciousness point is really important here. It's like we should be seeing this stuff as valuable before we just chuck it away. Yeah, the amount of food that we lose that's never eaten is worth $750 billion a year. So that's $750 billion of complete inefficiency in the economy and you know, all those people's sweat and tears that went into, into making it. And it's also responsible, that, that food that we never eat is also responsible for about three and a half billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions as well that we needn't have if we're not going to eat the food. Yeah, I think, and I think the other point, Mark, that comes off from what you were saying, the, the other myth that comes from the sort of Green Revolution is that only these massive, great, extensive, intensive industrial scale farms can feed the world. And actually, that's, that's a bit of a myth. Uh, there are over 500 million farms in the world. Most of the world is fed still by small local family farms. It's about 80% of our food is still produced by these small local farms. And they do that with only 30% of the resources. And, and the yeah. fact is, it's not as profitable to do it that way. In answer to your original question, John, mm. you know, what's driven this? But that's because if you take only that economic lens, of course, when you've got small labor intensive family farms, they don't make as much money, but they may be a lot better in terms of the productivity 
productivity per unit of land and with an alignment and a relationship with the land itself. And so the trouble is we've created a system which is actually fundamentally about disconnection, which has completely undermined the fact that we put stuff into ourselves which is not good for us. We don't care about where it comes from. You know, we eat selfishly uh, and we totally disregard the gift of nature. So when you say we eat selfishly and going back to your point, Mark, about 96% of food wasted in sub-Saharan Africa is from the farm to the consumer, how much of that imbalance is just about saying, well, there are certain things that certain places can't grow? Is there ever going to be a solution where those things don't happen. Well, yeah, it's it's sustainable refrigeration. Sustainable refrigeration that doesn't damage the environment. The world is investing massively in fridges because, you know, that's the way you, you stop a lot of that food loss happening. You put it in the fridge, it'll last for a lot longer and you can transport it, all that kind of stuff. The kicker there is that most of our refrigeration system runs off fossil fuels. So one of the things I'm really excited about, and this gets us into you know, how do we unfuck ourselves, mm. is there's all sorts of very exciting sustainable refrigeration technologies. Um, we could literally go on about this for for an hour and i'm going to suggest that perhaps we probably have a whole show about fridges and their joyous impact potentially on society okay we'll maybe have a chat off the podcast about um, what there is to say about refrigeration and then um, we'll possibly commit to an hour on it but you strike me john as a man who probably has quite developed views about fridges oh absolutely but i'm guessing what you mean is the sort of the mechanics of the fridge and how it operates not an appropriate distance between, say, your raw fish and your dairy. <laughs> the solutions that we'll talk about then, let's move on to the solutions and let's talk about unfucking ourselves because it has got very bleak. Um, I mean, I yeah. did a show where I was fed lab-grown chicken because I was led to believe, working on that show, that lab-grown meat was a global solution to the current problem of people craving that form of protein. Have I been hoodwinked there? You're now saying there's actually ways of farming that take carbon out of the atmosphere and are sustainable and can provide the food we need. I'm feeling pretty bad. Yeah, well, no, but I think this is, a, this is a really interesting question, John, and it comes back to this point about industrialization. So I think, you know, the example that Mark was describing in terms of grazing livestock that replicate natural grazing patterns and the natural ecology of the relationship between animals like cows and, and grassland are, are actually, you know, pretty sustainable. Some people argue in agriculture that the worst thing we ever did was start erecting fences because that's what disturbed these these natural dynamics. And at the same time, you know, we have this uh, rise in industrial veganism, if you like. So we've got lots of meat alternatives appearing, you know, but, but they often are quite, quite engineered. You know, you've got everything from the Impossible Burger, which is obviously plant-based, but involves a lot of genetic manipulation in order to generate the heme, which is what is then the hemoglobin, the red pigment in your blood cells. Uh, and they've managed to get that from a yeast, which are then put into the burger, which means it looks, smells, tastes and bleeds a bit like a beef burger because it's the heme that gives that slightly metallic flavor that is so distinctive of a steak. So we're sort of trying to recreate something here. Uh, and if you take that to the extreme, you're now, you're now looking at a world where people are discussing food as software you know where we're talking about lab grown protein through precision fermentation which could be hugely disruptive in one sense where we can actually produce protein incredibly cheaply and incredibly efficiently in the lab in vast quantities so no one need ever go hungry and again i think the question of the reservation i have here and i and i don't have a hard or fast answer to this one is i again what does that do to our relationship with the land and you know mm. in, in, in an optimistic positive sense you could say well that would free up the land for rewilding and the bringing back of nature and you know and allow us to have more space for nature to recover and bounce back and be the bountiful rich and wonderful thing we know it can be in an Attenborough type way the flip side of that is does it destroy another element of our connection with the natural world if if all our food is coming from a lab? And I don't know where I quite sit on that particular dichotomy at the moment. Well, you struck exactly. That that was my problem. I mean, being there, I, felt I'd, I was paid to be there as a sort of comic slash presenter. And it, it was insane to go that way and not eat the chicken nugget because why would I have gone? But that was exactly my feeling is that seems to me and the, and the sort of vegan food you're talking about, you know, I do eat it, corn and things like that. But that is a that's a vegan food trying to impersonate 
an existing industry that says, well, the only foods that exist are cottage pie, burgers, sausages. <laughs> and I understand yeah. that, you know, I, I'm a big supporter of those because I think you have to acknowledge the emotional element of food. And if people are used to the taste of sausage and mash as a key dinner, because it reminds them of what their gran used to cook, then getting a vegan sausage and mash is a first step into stepping away from a destructive meat industry. But also it would be nice to say, well, you can make nuggets out of lentils. You can make cottage pie out of lentils and beans and things. So I agree with you sort of using it as an excuse to say, well, beyond chicken nuggets, what food is there? And, and you're not addressing that problem of, well, these are real foods that are grown naturally. So why not just eat those instead? But there is a middle ground. There is a middle ground. And I think it's going to be about those type of choices. I mean, you know, the sustainable diet for the UK is something like 90% less meat than we eat on average now. So it's not no meat. Um, and, you know, there are obviously the animal welfare questions and animal rights questions that are, again, complex and quite divisive in terms of the ethics here. But there is, as Mark said, arguably a role for some very high welfare, extensive livestock agriculture of grass-fed beef and, and hill-raised sheep. There are some elements of that which do sit into a sort of balanced ecological farming approach. I mean, the other side of it from away from the lab is into so-called alternative proteins like, like insects and invertebrates, you know, potentially to either displace the animal feed that goes to the animals we want to eat. So displacing some of that grain and soya protein, um, particularly for fish farming, because anyone who's been fly fishing knows that salmon like to eat flies. So why aren't we feeding our farmed salmon on flies that we could farm on food waste rather than pillaging the oceans in order to generate fish meal to feed very inefficiently to, to those farmed fish? And I've been a big fan of, of insect protein for some time because I just think there's something very interesting not least because you know most insects love being kept in horribly cramped you know and in sanitary conditions that's their ideal circumstances well let's come to uh, this then because in front of me i have a package that you sent me very kindly ahead of this podcast so tell me what you've sent me because i opened the box i mean i'm aware of what it is because it says it on the packet so i've been fascinated by insect protein you've got some uh, i think chili and lime flavored crickets um, in front of you, John. I have, yes. Lots of people have been getting in on the kind of insect market. If you've ever travelled through London Bridge Station, there is actually a black soldier fly farm in one of the arches under London Bridge Station where they're using brewing waste, uh, the old maltings and fermentations of, of brewing waste to raise black soldier flies. You can get a very high-quality, high-grade protein from those. Um, the crickets that John has got are usually harvested pretty much at the end of their natural life cycle. So uh, they've developed a sort of farming method, which they call cricket condominiums, which gives crickets plenty of space to hop around and be crickety. Uh, and how do, they, how do they taste, John? Well, I don't know. I haven't opened the packet. <laughs> I was going to wait for you. I mean, the, the line that intrigues me on the back is, um, these crickets are more sustainable than pork scratchings and more exciting than crisps. And I level with you. They picked the wrong guy there because I fucking love a crisp. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't come around my house telling me you got something better than crisps because I don't think it exists. But, I mean, usually, obviously, I wouldn't buy these or eat these, but you've sent them to me. Tell me, tell me what good I'll be doing if I eat these. I love the way that it just sounds like John's putting off the moment where he has to <laughs> yeah. Just like, that's another question and another, and hopefully Ed will forget. Uh, we're out of time. Yeah. Well, I know, and, I know, and I know from grim experience that Mark will f refuses to entertain eating insects with I haven't wasted a fiver by sending any to him. Well, he's, uh, a, a, num a number of times Ed has tried to trick me on stage uh, into, into eating insects. It's, let it's me like, go, it's let like me go to Mark now then. What, what's your defense? Purely the aesthetic? Why don't you want to eat? Why am I eating this shit and you haven't got any in your house is what I'm saying. <laughs> Because well, Ed knows from bitter experience that uh, I can't stand that shit. <laughs> it tastes awful. Yeah, I think it's the wrong answer. It's like drugs for obesity, isn't it? It's the wrong answer. We should be having, you know, rather than going, you know, well, how do we replace something that's broken? Why don't we unbreak the thing? first place why don't we have a sustainable agricultural system in the first place rather than trying to find yeah but see mark is coming at this from a very very western perspective because actually if you look around the world about 85 percent of people and cultures in the world 
habitually eat insects. If you were sat in a bar in Mexico... Oh, I wish. You would have chapalines, which is basically grasshoppers, fried grasshoppers with chili, lime and salt, much like the crickets you've got in front of you as a bar snack. So, you know, I think we do come at this from a sort of slightly Western bias angle. Uh, a lot of the world loves insects. Yeah, but they don't eat them morning, noon and night. They don't think, oh, roast potatoes and insects. Oh, mashing insects. Oh, insect curry. Do they? No, they might have them as a bar snack. I'm all for that, you know, an exotic well, bar snack. You know, they're not, they're not making insect shepherd's pie. Well, no, but they, actually they are. If you, go, if you go to Lake Malawi when they have the flies, they actually have the huge nets which they will scoop the flies out of the air and make them into sort of fly burgers and fly fritters. Um, again, you know, it's, ve- it's very good lean protein. Insects are actually very healthy. They've got no fat and they're crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I'm going to eat one then because... I do think there's a massive, as you say, Ed, food is about more than putting nutrients into your face. It's a communicative thing. And you as a friend have sent me a gift in the interest of promoting something that you believe to be of interest to the planet. So on those grounds, I will eat it. And it's also, John, you know, with the greatest respect, when we eat vegetables, particularly organic vegetables and fruits, we are actually eating small invertebrates all the time, whether we are conscious of it or not. So all we've done is scale up the invertebrates to a slightly bigger, bigger heft. On that logic, Ed, you know, you'll, next week you'll be sending, you know, John a six-foot-long cockroach and going dig into that. <laughs> There are no vegans, is what you're saying. Anyone who eats okay. salad is not a vegan. Right, here we go then. They feel like when I shake the bag, they feel smaller than I thought they were going to. It's probably a good thing. Oh, Jesus. Uh, opening the bag was upsetting. I'll tip one out onto the table. Oh, God. <laughs> God. It's an actual insect. I'm with you, John. This is exactly, I'm listening to my own experience here. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I think I'm literally eating it because they're chili and lime flavour. If they were like cheese and onion, I wouldn't bother. Can you imagine not eating a cricket on the grounds that I'm vegan and I don't eat cheese? Yeah, I would, but they're cheese and onion. Right, well, three seems to be about the right size portion. So, um, oh, I can see their fucking eyes, Ed. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You, so you've never eaten anything else with eyes. I mean, you have eaten things with eyes. I have. I used to yeah. eat white bait and things, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're perfectly right. What's the difference between a cow, which has two big eyes, you're eating a slice of a cow just because you haven't seen it? It's because I'm looking into the eyes of this thing. And I think if most people had to look into the eyes of the cow that was in their stew, they probably wouldn't eat it. Right, well, down the hatch. Mm. <laughs> I don't like cricket. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they're not bad, I have to say. They're, they're, they're a lot lighter. Do you know, they're absolutely fine. If yeah. anything, there's not enough body to them. Yeah, they're, it's not like eating a... Because they do all sorts of ones. You can have like silkworm pupae. No, uh, you, you can, can have mealworms. No. no. Um, you can have ants. Ants actually taste a bit like Marmite, uh, which is interesting. I had found one of my colleagues one day who was sprinkling ants on top of his cheese and toast because he said it gives that lovely umami flavour to my cheese on toast. Now, talking about insects, though, can we talk about ants, Ed? We can talk about ants, yes. Because you have some fascinating facts about ants. Actually, I think, talk about how we might be a bit more ecological in a food system. Yeah, and I think, you know, building on this idea of relationships, so I, I was at this event, Atlas of the Futures, fixing the future. Someone put up a slide there which said that there are actually about the same weight of ants on the planet as human beings. It's about 350 million tonnes of ants and about 350 million tonnes of us. Jesus, that's terrifying. Exactly, 350 million tonnes of ants. It's a war. Yeah, (laughs) but at least it's quite evenly matched, John. Uh, Yeah, that's not what I want. I want humans (laughs) to win. I don't. I'm not interested in a good fight. I want you to tell me there's actually, if you weighed all the ants, there's only about ten grams. We could have them with one decent size shoe. Don't tell me it's fifty-fifty. I was going to say I'm a lover, not a fighter, but let's be honest, I'm neither a lover nor a fighter. But um, in a fight against an equal, you know, another guy like me, another sort of six foot two, ten and a half stone muscular guy without a ball patch like me, I'd probably feel more comfortable going into that fight than 11 stones worth of ants (laughs) (laughs) sort of making a human form together. I'd probably fancy my chances in the first one. So the the thing is, ants also actually eat, about 30% of their body weight each day, whereas we only, depending on our appetite, about 3%. So ants actually eat 10 times more than us per day. 
But the thing is, and this is where the kind of the relationship with the wider ecology becomes so important, despite the fact that ants eat about 100 million tons of food a day, they actually enrich the world as they do that because they're eating things and cycling nutrients through the system in a very balanced and integrated fashion. Whereas us, with our just our mere 10 million tonnes of food consumption a day, are actually managing to devastate systems because of the impact that we have on them. So the answer is we've got to be more ant. I think it's where we come together, Ed, because you, you, know, you will say, eat more insects. And I would say, no, don't eat the insects, be like the insects. But I, knew, I knew we'd find harmony somehow. <laughs> I started singing the Beatles then and then yeah. I realised that the lyric was come together right now over me and that's not what I want <laughs> at the end of this podcast um, so tell me what does that mean then be more like an ant well, I, and I think, again, it's about um, having this relationship with the land and understanding our connection with the soil. And as I say, looking at more balanced ways of farming to produce food. I mean, we know that actually, you know, getting our hands dirty actually makes us happy. Weirdly, if you stick your hands into soil, you get the same oxytocin released as when you give someone a hug. I think I might be an outlier on both those statistics. <laughs> you don't don't like hugs or getting your hands dirty. I'm in a muddy hog. That's pretty much. I, that's, those are my panic dreams that I'm having now about the virus. <laughs> muddy people running up to me for a hug. <laughs> and again, sort of moving on from the sort of the monocrops type of approach. If you go back to like American Indians, actually, who saved the lives of the Pilgrim Fathers and the Puritans when they first arrived on the east coast of the U.S. because they taught them how to farm in a balanced way and um, the American Indians agricultural system was based on what they call the three sisters which was corn beans and squash uh, and what they would do is you plant the sweet corn and then the sweet corn grows as we know you know those great big five six foot high stalks the beans would then wind their way up the stalks so the stalks of the sweet corn would support the beans as they grew and the beans are also nitrogen fixing so they would actually be putting nitrogen into the soil and helping to boost the productivity of the sweet corn itself and then around the base you grow squashes and pumpkins which provided the big leafy cover which prevented the invasion of other weed species now that complementary planting is all about understanding relationships with the land and the relationships between the different crops it is obviously very labor intensive because you've got to tend it and love it and nurture it but the productivity you get per unit of land that way is incredibly good this isn't working with nature's gift this is not sticking two fingers up at nature and seeing what we can rinse out of her in the process it's actually understanding the ecology of the soil and the ecology of the different crops we might grow alongside each other and their interactions and using that relationship to be the most productive way possible if you look at this holistic way of cattle farming i mean you can literally look down the line of a fence between two farms and one farm is green and that farm is doing very well and the other farm is kind of a, a dust bowl and the farmer is living on drought assistance because the land has been decimated over years and years and um i was witness to this conversation between two such farmers one who was using the system that works with nature and one who was using what was considered the traditional system and the, the, the guy made system had quite a good year and he said oh i've, I've made more money than you have this year and the guy using the the system that's more in tune with said well we haven't really because your farm's going to fall over next year because there's hardly any fertility left in it whereas my farm will be here for a thousand years if i keep farming it like this so who's more profitable and that's kind of a microcosm of what's going on you know you don't want to fuck the operating system of humanity and that's what we're doing with our agricultural system it's it's be more ant because ants don't fuck their own operating system. They're actually replenishing the land upon which they feed as they go along, and therefore it becomes increasingly bountiful for them. And that's a virtuous circle, and that's how Mother Nature works. And it's back to this point that Aved talks about, that if we understood that we were part of nature rather than trying to dominate it, this mindset shift, then we could use all of our brilliant human ingenuity and all the great things that, that make us human and, and, and give rise to you know, the pinnacles of experience like a John Richardson live show. And we could <laughs> use all of that in service of a making ourselves happier b connecting with nature and c having a very prosperous economy that gives decency and good lifestyles to everybody i mean it's all it's all doable it's just that the status quo of the fertilizer companies and the irrigation firms and the and the monsantos and whatever you know that's very well funded and makes some people very rich that was going to be my next question given that you you're saying as we seem to always say, these systems exist and are profitable and are more ecological. What is that main barrier then? Is it is it stubbornness or is it simply that the people making the money are 
so far still in charge of things. Mm. Well, one of the key things in the UK, and this is interesting because this could be, from my personal perspective, one of the few upsides of Brexit. Because we are, have left the European Union, we don't have the same agricultural subsidies. And one of the reasons that people hang on to agricultural land is because you could make good money just by sitting on it. You know, you don't even have to farm it half the time. Uh, you just get paid for owning land. Now, it's unlikely that that subsidy regime will be replaced in the same way in the UK. So actually what it might do is depress land prices because, you know, you won't be getting the same income just by holding the land, which could also increase access to land, which means that more small farmers can get a toehold on the ladder. I think what we've got in the UK is actually a whole bunch of quite enlightened small farmers who want to do organics and permaculture and agroforestry and different complementary styles of, of farming and planting. Um, but they, they're being prevented from getting in because too much of the land is owned in a sort of agribusiness or very large scale farming type way. So one of the good things, one of the exciting things of how we might be able to unfuck ourselves is by getting those land prices down and allowing access to more radical pioneering farmers. I mean, I think it's an important point to make that, you know, you shouldn't be beating up existing farmers, you know, no. because when they see that you can do it in a way, because they do have a relationship with the land and they, and they do feel close to it, but they, the problem with farming, so one of the problems with farming is it's usually a family business. So if you want to change the way you've done things, you have to probably turn around to your, your mum and your dad and your granddad and your grandmum who might still be living with you and say, I want to do this differently. And that's, that's culturally quite difficult. And it's also not about saying that all the technology we've got in farming is bad. You know, there are some arguments for perhaps light use of genetic modification for uh, irrigation where it's needed for the use of fertilizer in certain conditions. It's not saying all these innovations are bad, but it's about putting them in a context rather than this overbearing narrative we have, which is the only way to do it is, is industrially. And that all comes out of of our fascination with ourselves and the industrial revolution which has many many wonderful things that have come out of it but it also comes as we have realized with this massive sustainability headache and we have to answer that question and one of the things i struggle with all the time when i'm having these debates whether it's with investors or whether it's government or whatever is try not to demonize anybody because everybody's trying to do the right thing and it's about educating people and one of the things that is happening at the moment is, is that soil health has become come right up the agenda and people are now talking about this and at a policy level which is great so there is hope so do you believe that those conversations will result in change in the right direction um i think so and the reason i think that is because if you look at the levels of soil erosions we've got this is not arguable and if you look at the what's happening to the water table and uh, the problems that brings that's inarguable i mean one of the reasons that you know california is now a tinderbox is because the agriculture in california is so thirsty that the land is just bone dry and that starts to have massive economic as well as as human costs to it and that changes people's attention very quickly and when you have to buy as they are doing in california now, when you have to buy an old oil well you know to get down hundreds of meters and that well itself costs you seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you've got to wait three years for it because there's such demand for them you start to think this probably isn't an efficient way to run the system and maybe there's a different way of thinking so you have to combine all these arguments i say in everything i do you have to get the money to move to think differently and often you do that with an economic argument but also you have to get the culture to move at the same time where people say we want to do this differently and right now in agriculture i think we we're at a test stage where we could do both yeah and i think there's something really interesting i often talk about this as sort of handicraft and spacecraft so you know using a kind of the heritage and the deep traditions that mark's just been talking about in a positive way so there's one of my favorite organizations is where in suffolk you know where i'm from uh, is hodma dods you know who are actually bringing back growing traditional beans and peas and grains and lentils and even even growing quinoa in essex for you know the ultimate guardian easter type of crop i eat their roasted fava beans yeah exactly so they're bringing this back and it goes back to the dull piece that we talked about before because you know most of the traditional british diet was peas porridge uh, and all dal is is peas porridge with the wonderful benefits of subcontinental indian spices uh, which make it more exciting uh, for a 21st century palate and then the, the flip side of that from the way from the handicraft of the, those traditional diversified bean crops the hodma dods are doing is something like the small robot company because i think what these guys are doing and this is a great british tech business they've understood that one of the biggest problems with with conventional agriculture is the depression of the soil from the weight of these enormous tractors which one of the reasons we have to keep plowing all the time is because of the weight of our machinery is compacting the soil in the land uh, and also to use much lighter 
robot and technology to go across the field, but also to use a sort of see and spray technology. So rather than spraying a whole field, you actually have you know intelligent sensors on the robots, which can literally just spray the plants, which need either a kind of quick squirt of pesticide or a quick squirt of fertilizer. And that means you reduce the amount of inputs by about 90%. Uh, and obviously the, the robots themselves can be solar and, and renewable energy powered. So you're taking out all of those fossil fuel inputs. And so I think the future is always going to be this combination of the use of intelligent technology, like small robots, along with the intelligent wisdom of working with the grain of the land. So I'll come to you finally. Um, there's been some very exciting stuff in terms of the systems that we can implement and new technologies that are coming. But can I can I press you both for an answer on what I, as a consumer, can do to sort of improve the system? Because what I found really interesting, and we've talked about this for about an hour, we haven't mentioned the two things that I think about most when I go to the supermarket, which are packaging, um, taking my own carrier bags and things, and air miles, which are the, are the big things we talk about, but they don't seem to be the big issues that we've spoken about here as why our food system doesn't work. No, and I, the, the funny, the plastic bag thing is is always this kind of huge red flag issue for me because, it's yes, it's important to take your own bags, but you know when they're, the footprint and your environmental impact of the shopping you're going to put in the bag is you know orders of magnitude bigger than the bag itself, then you know, you have to you have to start focusing on what's actually in your basket and what's in your bag rather than the bag itself. Um, but I think in terms of you know what people can actually do, I know we try and say we keep it down to one thing. I'm going to say it's a few things which are all connected. So I, I do think there's something about buying British from small local producers as much as you possibly can. I think we have to encourage the small players in the agricultural sector. So buying direct from small producers, which a lot of people are doing in the lockdown, very interestingly, uh, in order to support those people, because actually going to the supermarkets become more difficult and a lot of these things can be delivered. I think the second thing is to go even if you can't go fully vegetarian or vegan, to go majority plant-based, to really cut down on your meat and perhaps save your meat and fish for the special treats and go for the highest grade welfare meat you can afford by doing that. And the third thing, you know, as we've touched on several times, is just to waste less. Be innovative and creative in your cooking and see if you can reduce your food waste to almost zero because it's perfectly possible to do once you become a more adept chef and a better planner uh, by the stuff that you buy. So I think, yeah, buy British from small producers, go primarily plant-based and waste less. So I'll come to you, Mark, for the same thing. I would echo everything Ed has said. The one thing I would say is, is cook more. The more we think about food, the more we get involved with it, the more we involve our kids, for instance, in cooking, the more they just question what's on the plate. I think just being a bit more aware. I'm teaching my four-year-old to cook at the moment, and it's great. And he's starting to ask questions about where food comes from, and he's asking questions about the ethics of it and whatever. So creating just your own culture of sort of knowing and questioning, and that you know will help you make those decisions in the supermarket from a position of being positive rather than feeling guilty about stuff. Have you started him off with a deep fat fryer? <laughs> Uh, no, what's he doing at the moment? He made us the other day a ratatouille all by himself. Yeah, wow. He's making his own ratatouille. I mean, is he the reincarnation of Tim Brooke Taylor? God rest his soul. <laughs> well, if he is, that means either Tim Brooke Taylor died four years ago and nobody told us, <laughs> or he's not the reincarnation of Tim Brooke Taylor. Or yeah. your child was conceived while you were on tour and Tim Brooke Taylor lives near you and you didn't know? <laughs> uh, it's true, actually, that my wife's fertility goes up massively when I'm travelling. <laughs> let's not, i've got a tour in the diary so let's not have this conversation um I, just in case my wife is listening I, obviously that was a, a gag darling and thanks for listening right to the end that's a sign of a happy marriage i, I did my joke about my wife early on because if she does listen it'll be the first 15 minutes and then she'll switch off she gets it off of me at home especially whining about food <laughs> So uh, sadly, I think we have to end there when the truth is I have about 100 more questions. Um, I think food is probably a topic we could return to. So should we agree that perhaps in the next series of these podcasts, we'll talk more about food? Absolutely. It's been thrilling as ever. Uh, we end, of course, with Pointless Futures. I think we earn the right, having offered up some solutions and optimism, to slag off some of the directions that humanity is uh, choosing to turn. This week, we discuss the motorized ice cream cone holder, which... <laughs> Mark, did you stumble across this? I did. And um, I can't imagine what world you're in where you think, you know, what's really bugging me? I'm not going to use all of my entrepreneurial skills to address. 
is turning this ice cream cone around. It's just <laughs> too hard. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually remove the ice cream cone and put a rotating motor to move the actual, you know. What? Is there a reason why you become more Yorkshire as you do that? Is there a reason why you become more Yorkshire as you, as you describe this motorised ice cream cone? <laughs> These bastard cones. <laughs> but you know, what, what's, going, what's going on in the mind of somebody there? I mean, I like the cone for a start. I want to eat the cone, but you have to replace the cone in this thing with a piece of plastic crap with a motor in it that turns the actual ice cream around because you can't be bothered. It is the epitome in terms of what we discuss. You know, somebody who's thought, how can I replace food with plastic? <laughs> I mean, it is to describe it. It's, it's, it looks like the game Ball in a Cop, but um, the cop is made of plastic, and instead of a ball, you have the ice cream scoop, which I guess by holding it, it doesn't melt so fast. When it does melt, it then drains into the cop, and it's powered by two AA b- batteries so that it <laughs> spins the scoop around. So I guess you just press... It's sort of like a lathe. You press your tongue against it, fire up the batteries and it just spins into your face yeah it spins us all into oblivion it's another element of ice cream eating that if anything it was too energetic a process and you know by the time you finished an ice cream you've burnt off the calories you got from eating it so it's taken some of the exercise out of eating an ice cream as well and it's dishwasher safe so i should point that out for anyone who's listened to that and thought "Mm, actually i think that sounds pretty cool Uh, that's almost it for this episode thank you Mark and Ed for your company thank you everyone at home for listening Uh, thank you for all your correspondence if you've got any questions about anything we've discussed if you've got suggestions for pointless futures here's how to get in touch with the show you can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com that's hello at john j-o-n and the futurenauts all one word dot com We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Okie dokie, that is everything. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. We will be discussing work. Thank you. Have a good week. Take care. Bye-bye.